Good afternoon, everybody. This is Joel Rasmus, Managing Director of Sirius. It's my great pleasure to be able to open this week's edition of the Sirius Security Seminar. Uh, but before I do so, a couple uh, other announcements. So the, the registration for the Sirius Symposium is now open. You'll see on the screen right now the website to that. Um, the dates there are March 28, 29. We encourage uh, everybody that is able to attend to. It is an in-person event. There is no virtual component to that. So if you're looking for a great opportunity to get to campus, here, here it is. Uh, we are drawing people. I got confirmation from people from the Middle East and Europe today who will be attending. So uh, again, we continue to draw people from around the world to this, uh, to this event. It's the 24th annual uh, we held the first one of these at about around our first anniversary of Sirius. So that means that this is the 25th anniversary of Sirius. We will have a celebration on Tuesday night. There will be cake. So we hope to see many of you here for that. Um, I'll try to mention this at the end, but for those uh, who are actually uh, attending the class, uh, who are a member of the class, next week presenter is Dr. Ronald Keen from DHS CISA. He's the Senior Advisor for Space Systems. It's going to be a fascinating talk. He will be on campus, so we will be live in Stewart Center uh, in the basement there at G52, otherwise known as Suite 50B. Uh, there will still be the virtual component, so those who are at a distance or even those who uh, are around campus but can't make it to Stewart Center, you will be able to, to participate. For those who are not students, that room is available. So if you are just part of the, the general public, uh, faculty, again, anybody who's not a student or even if you're a student but not registered for the class, you are welcome to join us live. It's always nice to have a, a live audience in front of a live person. So that's all next week. Okay. Uh, those who have questions, please pop them in the Q&A, not the chat feature. Uh, if it happens, we can still work with that. Uh, Jason, towards the end of the presentation, if you want to open up the Q&A, but Mike and I usually do a fairly good job of alerting to you or repeating questions to you. So housekeeping logistics are done, so now it's my great pleasure. So our speaker today is Jason Ortiz, and Jason is the uh, uh, engineering manager at Finite State. Uh, he joined commercial industry a few years ago after a long history in the intelligence uh, agencies, intelligence uh, community. He's also currently the president of the Indiana InfraGuard, which is an FBI uh, initiative with commercial industry. So while he is now in a commercial company, he continues to serve the nation. Jason, thank you for that part of it. It is it's always my pleasure to be able to give the introduction to our to our uh, guest speakers, but uh, these are those days that uh, probably unjustifiably, but but it is what it is, is that I always feel like a proud father. So I I I had the great opportunity of of having Jason work as an intern for Sirius way back when he was an undergrad, uh, and got to know him and immediately knew man, this kid not a kid anymore. This kid is going to go far. He is just so, so, so bright. So again, this is the opportunity that I always feel like I'm a proud father, although I had nothing to do with the success, but just has been a pleasure to watch his career grow and all that he's accomplished. So with that, hopefully I made you blush. And Jason, the, the, the channel is all yours. Awesome. Thank you. I'll, I'll follow that up by struggling to find the unmute button here. 
Excellent. Well, that was a very great introduction. Thank you. I appreciate the, all of the, the kind words, Joel. It, it was um, great times back in the 08, 09 uh, for Sirius. I think I still have the 10th anniversary mug. So to see Sirius coming out right along to the 25th is, is pretty awesome. Um, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome. I'm going to do a quick introduction. I do have a little bit of interactivity, if possible, that we could use the chat for probably instead of the Q&A. Um, but it'll really help me kind of gauge everybody's understanding of a fairly emerging uh, software supply chain question. Um, but before I get to that, let's, I'll give you a little bit more background, not that I could top everything that Joel said, um, but I am a Purdue University graduate, undergrad um, from 2009. I worked uh, in Sirius as an intern with a, a MITRE Honey Clients project. Uh, back in the day, it was pretty fun. We were basically browsing the web, trying to find exploits and attacks that we could capture uh, and learn about. I also worked at the high energy particle physics labs, uh, which was really cool and built a bunch of the silicon sensor wafers that are used in the Large Hadron Collider now over in CERN in Europe. So that was great. Um, but I'm always excited to, to either be back on campus or to speak at Purdue events because Purdue holds a very special place in my heart. Um, I grew up in Indiana and I left for a little while to pursue careers with NASA and the intelligence community. Um, but now I'm back and working in uh, cybersecurity services and, and products. Uh, so that's really cool. And, and I right now, uh, currently, I'm working on software supply chain security, hence the name of this talk. Um, I'm also pretty connected with the Indiana IoT Lab down in Fishers, if anybody's familiar with that. It's a very, very cool co-working-ish space for um, typically Angel or Series A funded IoT uh, related companies. Um, so feel free to reach out after the talk if you have any questions, comments, want any connections or anything like that. All right, so before I get started with laying the groundwork, I want to ask a quick question of everybody. Uh, of everybody here, you can just throw a quick Y or an N, yes or no in the chat. Who knows what an SBOM is, a software bill of materials? All right, sweet. Seeing a pretty good mix. Okay. All right, I'll cover that briefly then. I won't assume that everybody knows what an SBOM is. Um, very good. And my second question in that sort of same line of questioning is, um, how familiar are is everybody in this group with the details of the solar winds breach that is the most famous software supply chain attack that we've had on a scale of like one to five five being entirely familiar okay fairly good fairly good mix there too okay i'll be sure to cover some of those um that gives me a good idea of, of kind of like making sure that I'm not talking past something with regard to supply chain security, because ultimately software supply chain security and product security as a greater discipline is still very much an emerging market where we are challenged with that at my company every day. 
Um, the fact that not every organization has really begun to address this yet, but we need to. It's a critical component of our full security lifecycle. And hopefully by the end of this talk, everyone will know what, what software supply chain security is and why it's important and why it's critical to be thinking about. So first off, let me kind of set the stage for where we are today. Um, obviously, we've seen explosive growth in connected devices. Everybody knows this. There's devices in our house that weren't there a few years ago, like doorbell cameras and Amazon and Google Home devices. And that growth is expected to continue to the tune of over 50 billion uh, by 2025. So if you graph that out, it's exponential. And as a result of that, uh, we're also seeing a pretty solidly exponential rise in the cost of some of the tax. Um, one of the very first examples of that was a, a pretty low end and very simple attack that ended up costing a lot of money. That was the Mirai botnet, which essentially went around and affected IP cameras that were vulnerable. And by vulnerable, I mean, they literally logged into them using a default username and password that were configured on those devices for remote access. Uh, and then they could use the IP camera to do whatever they wanted. That in and of itself is not particularly technically cool. It's not particularly security savvy. Um, and each individual IP camera that was infected is a very small and not particularly powerful device. However, when you collect 500,000 of them and then you point them all at the same DNS server at the same time, for example, you can cause some major issues. And they took down nine of our 12 root DNS servers with $30 IP cameras that have been collected around the globe. So. IoT and some of these products, even if they're individually very weak, uh, can be used in extremely expensive and exhausting attacks. What might even be a little scarier than that is the fact that 62% of manufacturers of these devices right now currently say that they lack the resources necessary to make their devices secure. So that means six out of every 10 producer of a smart thing does not know how to make that thing secure. That is a very, very scary figure to me. So I mentioned the term manufacturers, uh, really important to break up the product market into a couple of groups, because we're gonna talk about these two groups in a little bit more detail. So manufacturers, this group is everybody who makes a connected smart product. A lot of those are industrial grade connected equipment, things that are on assembly lines, for example, you know, things that are at power plants and in the energy infrastructure. Um, all of those are probably made by companies you've never heard of in a lot of cases. Sometimes you may have heard of them. Companies like Schneider Electric, for example, have a lot of industrial grade connected equipment that they manufacture. There's also the consumer grade connected products. And those are distinctly different in a lot of ways when you look at the product itself, entirely different operating systems, entirely different requirements around security and building those. Um, but that really runs the gamut. Conser consumer grade connected product could be as simple as your Fitbit on your wrist, like I have, uh, your Amazon Echo, the doorbell that I mentioned before. It can go all the way up though to some incredibly complex and important systems. For example, the software that drives your car. Uh, if anybody has a Tesla, you've probably seen this even more than others, but every single car has some very complex software in it at this point. Every car that's manufactured today, I would say. 
um, to the tune that the average car, and this is average is looking at Toyota, Honda, Subaru, things like that, uh, is about a hundred times more complex from a security or from a software perspective than a modern day United States Air Force fighter jet. And that's kind of scary as well. That complexity, of course, leads to a massive threat surface and a lot of different challenges in securing that. So those are the manufacturers, everybody that's making the things, literally producing the things. Then we have the group of folks that are using the things and we call that typically an asset owner. So the asset owners run the gambit as well. Some manufacturers are also, or actually I would say most manufacturers are also asset owners because they are probably using third-party products to produce their own product. They probably didn't build in-house every single machine that's in the factory that, that makes their product. So they are also asset owners in a lot of cases. They not only need to be concerned with the security of the products they're manufacturing, but also they need to be concerned with the products that they're using to manufacture their product. It becomes cyclical very quickly and you can see how this you know, grows in complexity very, very quickly. We also have consumers as asset owners. You and I are, are most likely all asset owners of some level. I showed you my Fitbit. Um, probably everybody I would guess in this class has some sort of smart device that you're using. If not, I commend you for that. And uh, I'm curious that you're in computer science in the first place, but uh, consumers are, are a very large group of asset owners, but typically own much lower power, much lower fidelity devices. Also much less critical devices. If my Fitbit gets hacked, the criticality of that versus you know, some, some sort of equipment in the electrical grid is obviously way different. And we'll talk about that a little bit more once we get to the threat landscape as well. Um, and then there's lots of organizations that are asset owners. Purdue University is an asset owner. Hospitals, utilities, defense, all asset owners, they're all using connected devices manufactured by somebody else, a third party. So given that, given you have the asset owners and the manufacturers, uh, we have a couple of kind of alarming stats here. 21% of device manufacturers have a supply chain security policy. One out of five, only one out of five even have a policy around how they're gonna address their software supply chain security problems. That's pretty concerning. Four out of five don't even have a policy, which means they're probably not addressing it at all. Out of the device manufacturers who regularly assess the security of their own products, uh, or I'm sorry, out of those, only 50% of the device manufacturers regularly assess the security. So even of the tiny number of manufacturers who have a policy, only half of them actually regularly assess the security of their products before shipping it. And back to this very close, the 61% we saw before, we're seeing 59% of manufacturers say they've lost sales because of product security concerns. I don't think that it is completely unrelated to the fact that 61% say that they don't address product security at all. It seems like a pretty strong correlation. So there is a definite business impact to addressing your software supply chain or your product security. And there's a huge gap in some of the manufacturer's strategies around that. So let's look a little bit generically first and then we'll dive more in depth on this. So everybody here is at this point I'm sure, as I am, sick and tired of the term Internet of Things because it doesn't really mean anything. 
but I'm using it on this slide to be extremely generic. What I really mean is, is some of those connected products that we've talked about. Why do attackers love this new threat surface? Obviously, there is the sheer size of it. The number of devices guarantees a bigger threat surface. But on top of that, it's easier to gain access to them. Physical access is super easy. These devices are everywhere. They're just out there. You could literally just walk up to them in a lot of cases and plug something in. Or if you have to get really complex, you can solder a couple of wires onto some debug ports or something. But the days of being able to rely on servers locked in closets, locked in rooms, locked in buildings for security are over in terms of IoT and the threat landscape there. We also have a lot of software-defined physical functions in the critical environments where you have the industrial internet of things. Obviously, software is controlling things that are physical. Software is controlling things like valves and relays and things that have a real-world physical impact. If you open a valve, whatever it's blocking flows through there in real life, not just digitally. Uh, so that is entirely different than, say, securing an Amazon cloud server where, where it does not have that sort of connection to the physical world. We also have this unique confluence of lack of security tools and tooling to help our product security teams in the first place. Application security tools typically don't even work on most of these devices. If you have an endpoint, security tool that you've installed on your MacBook, for example, you're not going to be able to install that most of the time on a tiny RTOS that's running on an embedded device somewhere. Number one, it's probably not supported. Number two, the resource requirements of it are probably too high. And number three, a lot of times, especially in critical environments, it's simply not allowed from a compliance standpoint. So there just aren't very many tools that can help product security teams address this threat surface in the first place. And of course, that leads to a couple of other things. Without any tools, manufacturers tend to prioritize security a little lower versus shipping their product. And it also becomes very difficult to update, patch, do all of the typical things that you're supposed to do from a cyber hygiene perspective. So that kind of chain of events leads to a much bigger threat surface as well. Uh, because we just don't have the security tooling available to these devices that we would to our typical endpoints and servers, things like that. On top of that, we have the whole supply chain problem, which is where we're going to spend the majority of the rest of our time today. What in the world is even in the software that's running on the device? Turns out almost nobody knows. Uh, when you have things that are incredibly complex, like the system that runs a car, um, and of course, the entertainment system is the most complex piece of the entire car software package. We've worked on those things for years, sometimes decades, and there's very little institutional knowledge of exactly what's in there. Even large companies with hundreds or thousands of product security employees have real trouble telling you what's actually in their software. And it's very limited visibility uh, in terms of that. And we'll get into this a little bit more. Now, from an overall integration perspective, these connected products are reaching critical mass in terms of how important they are. Uh, they really are the product themselves, really just the tip of the iceberg. And this is why like the, the Mirai botnet example that I shared earlier really just kind of showed what happened when you exploit the tip of the iceberg, but didn't 
show the potential damage of exploiting everything that's under the waterline here. The reason that these products are so useful and so great and why so many businesses are integrating them is because the data that they produce allows us to make a bunch of automated business decisions really, really fast. Uh, we can basically recalculate entire processes around data that's produced by these devices. We can make technical and financial forecasting decisions for our business based on the data produced by these devices. And we can base our entire risk management portfolio for the whole company on data that's produced by these devices. The problem is, of course, what if that data is wrong or slightly wrong? And is there any way to know when that's happening? So what does that actually look like? All of that complexity, what does that actually look like in terms of a software supply chain? Well, let's take an IP camera. That's kind of the, the security camera icon there. And let's extrapolate that. On the software that's running on that IP camera probably looks something like that little stack there. There's probably some high level applications that are running and those applications are using libraries. If you're living in Python world, those are imports, right? And all of those things are running on some sort of operating system, probably a real-time operating system. And that operating system is running on some sort of firmware that's interacting with the hardware components on some level. And each one of those layers from apps all the way down to the hardware components layer can have any number of potential vendors that supplied that behind the scenes. So even if you developed the app in-house, you probably imported a library that you didn't develop. If you write in Python and you import JSON, you've imported a library that you didn't develop in-house. So that came from somewhere, that came from some third party. And do you know what that library uses? Let's say that that library came from vendor A. Well, in order to build that library, they may have imported something else that came from vendor X. You see that over there on the far right-hand side and so on and so forth. And that is true at every single level, the app level, the library level, the operating system level, firmware and hardware level. And who knows how far back that chain goes. A to X is only two hops. That would be a really simple supply chain and one that I would love to see in real life. Unfortunately, it's not particularly reflective of real life. Typically, there's many more hops behind X as well before you actually get to the root of a software development team. So let's look at that, that route and see where these vulnerabilities can enter the supply chain. And then we'll talk a little bit about those individual, uh, like the individual places where software is developed. So where in all of that stack can we have vulnerabilities? So obviously, open source. Uh, if we're going to base anything we do off of any open source library, if you pip install something, then you need to be concerned about this. Uh, again, I'm, I'm talking in a Python world, so apologies if, uh, if, you're, not, if you're not Python friends. <laughs> um, but open source libraries, all of those things contain CVEs, vulnerabilities, um, and that's especially true when you have multiple versions. Third party. So this is basically when you've paid some other vendor to develop software for you or potentially incorporated some other vendor sourced software. So that's another spot. That vendor may have introduced some vulnerabilities or some security issues. And then first party, that's what you build at your company. So these are your own engineers. And of course, we all know that every single engineer writes perfectly secure code, right? 
normally that would get a laugh. I'm hoping some folks are smiling at least a little bit, but since we're not in person, I can't tell. Um, but your own engineers are gonna introduce security issues, typically unintentionally. It could be an insider attack or an Easter egg or something intentional, but the majority of them are unintentional issues that we've introduced in our own first party code. Um, and then that's it. That's the end of the development cycle, right? What you've written, what others have written, what we've incorporated from an open source perspective. But then it goes even further because now you actually have to deploy this code somewhere and all of the configuration that can go into that um, can include many, many security issues. A very common example is hard-coded credentials. Are you included the, you know, the, the, certificates that are used for authentication directly on the you know hardware of the device things like that um, and so there's lots of different configuration issues um, and then of course updating and patching is a particularly vulnerable spot in the supply chain you have to make sure that when you are updating or patching that you're actually getting the update or the patch from where you're supposed to be getting it from uh, there are many, many IoT, IoT things, some that you use in your house that have completely unverified updates. In other words, if I wanted to push software or firmware to that thing right now, I could by telling it, go get this update and it would listen. That's pretty scary as well. So all of those places are kind of the, the top level places where vulnerabilities come into our software supply chain. So now, from the organization perspective, what does this look like? So that was kind of from the, the, the software and the coding, the technical perspective. From the organization perspective, that supply chain looks a little more like this. You have a set of software suppliers. So those are the groups that build the general purpose software components. And those general purpose software components are incorporated into millions of various hardware and software systems around the globe. Now, for a software supplier, a majority of their code is first-party code. So they develop 70%, let's say, of their own code. And then even maybe 30% might come from somewhere else in the chain, like open source, something like that. But the software suppliers that write most of their own code have a, have a much simpler supply chain and typically a fairly small portfolio um, in terms of what sorts of software devices, et cetera, they would have in that chain. Moving to the right a little bit, you get to the component suppliers. And these are the groups that build a more complex hardware or software system that'll act as an entire component in another product. So we're only one step away from actual software suppliers and we're already below 50% in terms of first party code. So 60% of what a component supplier would produce is going to have software supply chain visibility issues. In other words, if they're not regularly validating that 60%, they may not have any idea what's actually in there. So only one step away from the chain, we're less than half certain that we know what's in our software. You go two steps down the chain, remember the device manufacturers, the folks that build entire hardware systems, build the connected product. This is two steps down, and you can see there that only 20% of that code is first party code. So 80% of what a device manufacturer, manufacturer puts into that device in terms of software is completely unknown to them unless they've done some pretty serious software supply chain analysis. Now, by the time it gets all the way to the asset owner, that's us, that's a hospital, that's 
the energy grid, the utilities, that's Purdue University, and, and of course, many others. By the time it gets all the way to an actual consumer of an end product, you're talking about individual percentages of first-party code. So 95% or more of that software supply chain is going to be a complete black box unless, unless you've done some pretty serious analysis. And we know that intuitively, right? Does anybody here knows know what software is running on their Fitbit? Probably not. Maybe you know a general OS, or maybe you know something like it's you know built off a specific language. But understanding the full software supply chain for that is extraordinarily rare at the asset owner level. So the supply chain is very complex once you get to this point. Very, very, very large portfolio uh, of software that's part of that chain. So this is the billion dollar question for product security teams. And this is the thing that's a very, very difficult thing to answer. So if someone disclosed a new CVE today that may impact your product or the products you use, um, and we know like a CVE is typically tied with some sort of software component, like BusyBox, for example. How long would it take you to find out which products and which versions of those products are impacted? And could you remediate those? And how long would those remediations take? This is actually not a new, it's not a new problem. It is a new problem for software though. If you think about physical supply chain security, think about something like a car. It has thousands of components from hundreds of different vendors. There's a pretty significant supply chain from there. Um, but every single car that drives on the road today has a special number, the VIN number. And the manufacturers of cars like Ford and GM and Subaru and so on, have a list, literal list, of where all of those cars are by VIN number and every single product that went into those cars. So when there's a recall because a bolt uh, that is supposed to be grounded from the heating system of a Subaru comes loose and causes a fire, this is a real world example that is happening right now, the Subaru can figure out fairly quickly every single car that's impacted, every single car by VIN number that has that bolt in it and can send you a notification to go and get that recall fixed. That is not true for software. It never has been, and it probably never will be. Uh, but <laughs> there are some things that we can do from an analytical and a security perspective to help reduce the time it takes to uh, have a similar system to identify some of that. So I did see a quick question in the chat of what's a CVE. So we can definitely address that. Um, actually, let me, I'll address that here on the NIST cybersecurity framework. So the first solution to the software supply chain, of course, is application security. We say, well, we'll start an application security program and we'll understand everything that's in our application. And the reason that we arrived at that is because we've been taught basically from the start that we should model our entire security model around the NIST cybersecurity framework. 
which is this framework right here, recover, identify, or I'm sorry, identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. And AppSec is a big important piece to identification and protection. Now, the CVE is a thing that's been defined by MITRE Common Vulnerability Exchange. It is essentially a list of vulnerabilities connected to known software. So a CVE, you can go and look it up in MITRE, but an example would be saying something like, this particular version of BusyBox has a buffer overflow vulnerability in this particular module, so on and so forth. Uh, so CVEs enumerate all of the known vulnerabilities in software components. And then we take it a step further and we can add context to those like the vulnerability exchange, which basically tells you whether or not that vulnerability is actually exploitable. And if it is, is it currently being exploited? Basically, what is the state of the exploits in the wild? Is it, is it currently being exploited? Is there a POC for that exploit? That sort of thing. AppSec does not see that context. And therefore, AppSec makes it very difficult to prioritize what we should actually do with our findings. So if you've ever worked in an operational SOC or something like that, you've probably experienced this a little bit. There's something called alert fatigue. And that is essentially you get thousands and thousands of alerts, all these bad things all the time happening. But most of those are false positives. And without context and analysis, we have no idea what's what. That is a major, major problem with AppSec. You cannot prioritize things that you're trying to fix if you don't know which ones are real and which ones aren't. AppSec is also geared toward web applications. What do we do for embedded? What do we do for our tosses, et cetera? Pretty much nothing in an AppSec world. So this is where the SBOM came in. And this is not, now we're getting fairly recent. Like this, we're talking like groundbreaking stuff in 2017 or 2018. So this is not, this is not particularly old things. So an SBOM is a software bill of materials. It is basically a list of all of the identified software components in a analyzed piece of software. So if you were to give me BusyBox and I run it through our system to build an SBOM, it would tell you every single software component that was ever included in that version of BusyBox, whether it was included through code or loaded dynamically as part of the binary, that's what an SBOM should be. It's great. We've solved the software supply chain problem, right? Because now we know everything that's in our software. Not quite. The SBOM is a fantastic tool and it does offer you some supply chain visibility. However, how do you know that the SBOM is accurate? That's where your vendor trust issues kind of come in. If you don't produce the SBOM yourself, do you trust your vendor that their SBOM is accurate? Or did they kind of haphazardly put it together by asking some developers, oh, what did you include in your code? And there you go, there's your SBOM. It's not really a great way to, to know that. Um, you literally just have to trust the vendor who's providing you with that software bill of materials. On top of that, the SBOM does nothing about the post-deployment of that particular device. Doesn't tell you about configuration issues, it doesn't tell you about anything that's happened as far as updating and patching. It doesn't tell you where those components are in terms of where they are in your products. So it doesn't solve that problem of, could you find all of your products that have this particular vulnerability? I'm gonna skip this slide and we'll come back to that. So the SBOM by itself, of course, isn't enough. 
what we really need to do here, quick check on time, 506. Um, what we really need to do here is we need to have product security as a life cycle. And I'm going to blow through this really fast because I'm going to step through each one of these individually as well. So the life cycle is going to look a lot like that NIST cybersecurity framework. Discover, assess, prioritize, remediate, respond, and improve. Those are the six steps that we absolutely have to have if we want to solve the software supply chain problem. So let's step through those. Discover, this is your SBOM. In order to understand and secure your software supply chain, you gotta know what's in it. That's basically all this is saying. There's a couple different ways we can do this. We can do binary analysis, which is fairly challenging and unique to only a couple of companies. Um, which means give me the actual compiled code, you know, compiled binary that runs on the device, and I can tell you, I can build you an SBOM from that. It's pretty cool reverse engineering. Um, you can also do that from a code level, right? Give me your source code, and I will tell you all of the software components in that. Um, but essentially, generating the list of software components is the discovery step that we need to have in order for everything else to be based on. So the SBOM is a very important tool and it's very important to this product security lifecycle, but it is not the only thing that you need. And here's why. Once you have a list of all of the software components that are potentially in your device or in your product, now you need to match those software components up with known issues. You need, you know, just knowing that BusyBox version one, two, three is in there is not enough. You need to know all of the CVEs, CWEs, potentially zero days, uh, that are there in that, that exist in that particular software component. Otherwise, how do you know what to fix? It's just a list of software components. Uh, so that's step two. You've got to assess each one of those individually and match it up with all of your known CVEs, CWEs, zero days, basically understanding where your threat surface is. From there, you might have tens of thousands of things, maybe even hundreds of thousands of things if you have a particular large, uh, product or a particularly large firmware, you can't fix all of them. Not all of them are going to matter. So you have to have a way of prioritizing those things. Now, the bottom left is what we're really, really good at right now. Every single CVE has a score called a CVSS score that attempts to tell you how critical that CVE is. That's called the vulnerability context. So a CVE with a higher score is more critical. But you can't base your prioritization solely on that because it lacks the context in which that vulnerability would be exploited. So we have to include a couple of other things here that would help gain that context. One of those things is the exploitability context, which is the top of the triangle there. And so that is basically looking at how likely is an exploit, or I'm sorry, how likely is a vulnerability to be exploited? Is it available to be exploited or is it in a library that's in the code but is never actually used? For example, something like that would have a very low exploitability score, even if it was a critical vulnerability. Um, so those two things then, on top of those two things, you also need the threat context, uh, which is basically showing you who's exploiting, what's the development cycle look like for those exploits? Is there a POC already available? People are exploiting that in the wild and so on and so forth. You really need the confluence of all three of those things to be able to prioritize your highest risk issues. Um, so is it, a, is it a severe vulnerability 
that can easily be exploited, that's actively being exploited right now? If the answer of all those things is yes, it's probably something you should prioritize near the very top of the stack in terms of fixing and your product security. Without one of those, like you need all three of those things. If you're missing one, it becomes very difficult to do this prioritization step. Of course, the next thing there is once you have prioritized list of things, then you need to remediate those things. Uh, you need to create actions for your teams to go and make sure that you're iterating on security for your products. Um, you need to provide remediation guidance. Uh, basically, what are the best things you can do in order to fix and lower your risk of individual products? There's lots of ways we do that. We could do it through ticketing system. You can create reports. You can do lots of different you know, forms of communication there, but the remediation has to happen. Reporting and, and this the ticketing and things like that can be less interesting from a technical perspective, but are absolutely critical in the business context. And then this is the cool one. So now that you've been able to do all of this stuff, you should take all of the things that you've learned, all of your software components, all of the vulnerabilities that are matched to them, you know, all of the recommended remediations, all of that threat and exploitability context and the vulnerability context, you should take all of those things and put them in a place that is quickly and easily queryable. And that way your teams can quickly respond. So a new vulnerability comes out. Let's say we see a, a new CVE, it's critical. It's in log4j and wink, wink, if anybody's heard of that. And now we need to find everywhere that that particular critical vulnerability is in terms of products, right? We know what software component it is, it's log4j, but where is log4j in all of the products? That's what you can use this database for now because you've collected all of the data to build your product security in the first place. Uh, now you go and use it in a queryable format so that you can triage and react very quickly to some of those new challenges. Finally, you have to take everything that we just talked about and continue to iterate on it. You basically build out dashboards, analytics, reporting. This is where your machine learning and all of that really fun stuff comes into play as far as what you can do to be more secure or less risky is another way to say that in the future um, in terms of product security. Incorporating everything that you've already built out in an iterative uh, fashion is very, very, very much a cycle. So I'm not going to run through all of this in the interest of time, um, but the top layer there and the bottom layer, you can see uh, they're very similar, but both device manufacturers and asset owners need to go through this entire life cycle in order to really have, use, and ship secure products. There are some subtle differences in the way these steps are performed for each, uh, but ultimately it's going to look very, very similar for both of those big groups. So now that we've kind of talked about product security, um, we've really kind of focused on that full product security life cycle. I want you to think about it. I'm not expecting any answers or anything now, but think about just out of curiosity and interest, maybe if we get to the Q&A session here, are there any good ways that we can incorporate what we've learned from that into our detections and responses in a cybersecurity, in a NIST cybersecurity framework sort of way. So think about like your MSSP or your managed detection and response company 
Is there anything from a product perspective that would help us in terms of detections and responses? I don't think I'm running up against time, so I think I'm actually going to skip answering that question right now, but I'm happy to follow up with anybody who's interested in that specifically. Uh, but in summary, and we'll have a few minutes for Q&A here, uh, product security ultimately is a life cycle, just like anything else in cybersecurity. It has to be implemented as such. Otherwise, you will end up with a lot of software supply chain problems. And that's it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Hopefully, everyone's still awake. Are there any questions that anyone wants to throw in the chat or the Q&A? I think time is 520. Is that, I think, right, Joel? That is the uh, official for the class, but it, uh, it we rarely go to, we often go to 530. So okay. <laughs> we certainly have uh, 10, 15 minutes for, for continued Q&A. Uh, those attendants, whether students or, or the general public in attendance, please drop questions in the Q&A. In the interim, I will share with you, Jason, that we at, at the Sirius Symposium, in the Sirius Symposium in uh, 2022, uh, we had an entire um, a panel discussion on uh, SBOM and software secure supply chain uh, and, and had, a, had a, a gentleman actually came in and also talked about HBOM hardware and that how the government was you know, dictating that both SBOM and HBOM for some of these things. And uh, I wish it was my joke, but uh, had shared that. So these all could be bump, uh, uh, put together and realize that the government is pushing FBOM on us now, Federal Bill of Materials. So please feel free to use that new technical term of FBOM. <laughs> We, we do joke a lot um, internally at Finite State that the S-bombs we produce from our binary analysis and our source code analysis, we should call F-bombs because they're, they're really Finite State <laughs> S-bombs and not, not the same as what you would necessarily get from a vendor. So that's, that's pretty funny. I had not heard that coming out of the federal space yet, but I'm not surprised. <laughs> we, do have, uh, we do have two questions that have come in in the chat. I'll read the first one. And please feel free, Jason, to open up the, the chat and see them yourselves. But the first one is, uh, are there differences between software supply chain for IoT and ML? Uh, I would say from the actual software technical aspect, not much. Whatever's, whatever you're using in your machine learning libraries, tooling, et cetera, is going to be suspect to the same threats and vulnerability landscape as any software that you're using in IoT. I think the main difference is in the business context and what those sorts of things are being used for and where they're being used. Um, if a machine learning algorithm goes awry right now, it's probably a bruised ego or maybe some about, you know, a reputation bruise for most organizations. If a control valve at a nuclear power plant malfunctions, it could be much worse. And so I think when you're looking st strictly at the software, the process is the same, the analysis is the same, the results might look very similar in how you find issues and prioritize fixing those issues. But the, the business side of things right now is drastically different. That would, that would be my caveat there. 
The questions are rolling in. Do you want me to read the, continue to read them? Um, no, that's okay. I do. What happened? To, oh, it was answered. I see. Okay. <laughs> I was like, what happened to that one? All right. Yeah, no, I can read them. I can jump to the next one here. Um, sometimes the vulnerabilities in packages and libraries do not directly affect the product other than context. Is there anything else we can do to further prioritize issues from libraries? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the context is key in that because if a vulnerability uh, in a package does not is not triggerable or not exploitable or something, it's going to have a very low contextual score. So it'll be prioritized very low uh, in terms of the overall risk. So that's a big part of it. Um, the other part is that product security teams need to validate and verify the SBOM in, in the first place. SBOMs are not 100% accurate, um, especially SBOMs that are based off of binary analysis. Um, it, it could have misidentified a version of a software, for example. Um, if you can imagine all the possible versions, right? If it identifies BusyBox 1.2.3 and what you actually have in your software is BusyBox 1.2.3.R1, that can result in entirely different vulnerability linkage. Um, so making sure that the SBOM itself is accurate will also help surface the vulnerabilities that need to be addressed. Let's see, what do you suggest to a freshman student who is trying to learn more about software supply chain? Freshman under A freshman undergrad student, I would say do everything that you can to take as many security classes as possible in general and get involved in serious. Because <laughs> um, honestly, you know, there's there's probably a lot of foundational things for, for freshmen. If I'm thinking back to my freshman classes, um, like your computer networking classes, your, your operating systems classes, your compilers classes, all of those foundational things are really important because ultimately, if you if you don't have the foundation of how the operating system works, you're probably going to struggle to understand how the firmware works, um, which means you're going to understand struggle to understand why the vulnerabilities exist and the exploits work and all of that. So getting that foundational knowledge first and then ensuring you take every possible security class that Purdue has to offer. And who knows, maybe Purdue will offer a supply chain security class at some point, um, I, I would say would be the best path. Um, as far as outside of Purdue, any sort of internship with a company that does software supply chain security or more generally product security would be really beneficial. Might be difficult to find. There's not many. There's only a handful uh, right now. Um, so if the opportunity for that doesn't exist, an internship with, with a large company that has an internal product security team would be a really good fit too. Google has... I think like 14,000 product security engineers. I may have exaggerated a little bit, but not a lot. Like they have huge product security teams. Um, Non-traditional tech companies do too, like Ford, for example, and General Motors. Um, there's a big company called Aptive that supplies the software to the two companies that I just named to do a lot of the stuff in their cars. They have a huge product security team. So like finding those non-traditional manufacturers and producers of these things and getting internships there would be super helpful too. In the security framework, what preventative measures can be taken to build secure code? Yeah, that's a very loaded question. <laughs> that's, that's a really difficult question to answer because ultimately at the root of it from the business perspective, um, you know, in at Purdue, 
you could your code is going to be as secure as the amount of time you put into securing it. Um, and making sure that you're following like standard security practices is all very important. A lot of modern languages abstract some of that for you. If you're doing C, then you've got to worry about memory security pretty significantly. If you're doing Python, you pretty much don't. Um, so a lot of that is language dependent. Um, but ultimately, once you leave Purdue and you're working for an organization, it's it's honestly, it's kind of up to them. They're probably going to have policies. They're probably going to have software development lifecycle that defines certain things that you should follow. Um, but at some level, the business has probably made trade-offs and made decisions about you know, where the risk is in their software. And it's a balance of how fast they want to ship products versus how much they want to manage the risk. And from the business perspective, you can't go too far either way. If you overly manage the risk, you'll never ship a product, you'll never make a profit, and you'll fail as a business. If you undermanage the risk and do nothing but ship, then you'll probably have some major security breaches and then never sell another product and then fail as a business. And so it really is going to come down to organization-specific practices around that. Um, Everybody should pretty much have the basics of a software development lifecycle and certain secure coding practices, which you're probably learning or have learned already at Purdue, though. Hopefully these, hopefully these answers are comprehensive enough. If not, just ask the question again. <laughs> um, how SBOM is produced? Oh, how is SBOM produced by finite state? Is it based on semantic or syntax features? What kind of artifacts are generated in order to precisely identify SBOM? So we produce an SBOM in a couple of different ways, but primarily through binary analysis. So our customers give us compiled firmware, basically something that would run on the embedded device. And we tear that apart and we tell them everything that's in there in a dynamic sort of way. We can do some SBOM creation directly from source code, but it's not particularly preferred because it misses everything that's dynamically loaded. And a compiled firmware does not, right? A compiled firmware will have everything that's dynamically loaded. The code also lacks context. So if you've included something in code that's not actually used, that can be a difficult thing to discern as well. Um, and so we really prefer being able to analyze the binaries. Realize it's not always possible, but that's how we do it. We take something that's compiled. It can come in hundreds of different formats. The simplest is a zip file. We rip it apart through a process that we call unpacking. We identify every single software component that we think is in that, that firmware. We verify that through some fun analysis pieces to basically increase our confidence that the package we identified is correct. And if it's below a certain confidence threshold, then we back off on that identification. Um, and then we match up those software components with all of the applicable vulnerabilities from a wide variety of sources. CVE is one of those, CWEs. Um, there's a whole bunch of other exploit contexts that we pull in. And essentially what you get is a list of, you get your SBOM with all the software components in your thing, and then you also get all of the vulnerabilities, how exploitable those vulnerabilities are, how we would recommend prioritizing the fixes, what we recommend to do in order to remediate those vulnerabilities. All of that stuff, you get into a pretty nicely bundled dashboard report, et cetera. 
what is the demand for machine learning engineers in these types of companies? A few engineers, a huge team. In, in which types of companies, I guess, to clarify? In product and manufacturers of products or? Paul, if you could, perfect, thank you. Yeah. Oh, and software security, software security companies. Um, honestly, it's, it's fairly low right now. This product security in general is fairly emerging and the market really hasn't fully matured. It's getting very close, but it, there's still a lot of ambiguity on what the best ways to do some of these things are. So right now, I think the demand is fairly low um, in terms of machine learning engineers at a supply chain security company like mine, for example. But I, I expect within the next couple of years that that's going to change. And that demand is going to grow a little bit more as the complexity of the supply chain grows and the complexity of the threat surface grows, leveraging more and more machine learning around how we're prioritizing, how we're assessing those things, whether or not we're accurately identifying software components, all of that sort of stuff is going to come more and more into play. Jason, I'll accent your comment there that uh, there are openings right now, but I, I believe they're going to grow quite quickly. Yeah. Uh, if for no other reason than anybody, any organization that is going to sell to the U.S. federal government, this is a requirement. So yeah. companies who are, you know, today who are doing millions of dollars worth of business are now going back not only on their new products, but old products and have to provide SBOM. So the need for SBOM engineers uh, is, is growing very, very quickly within, um, especially in the U.S., but even to foreign companies uh, that, that may be selling to U.S. government. And not that the world is following the U.S., but other countries are taking note that, yes, that is a very big concern. And I, I imagine that some of them have probably identified this far before we did. But, but yeah, so I think there's a worldwide need worldwide need, and that the, the, the growing concern uh, is just going to fuel the more opportunities for their. Jason, we also have a question that did get dropped into the chat by one of our faculty members. I'll read awesome. that to you. It seems that SBOM is not always accurate. What would be the good practice for software development processes to create a more accurate SBOM? <laughs> yes, I would say SBOMs come in a, a wide variety of, of accuracy. Uh, most of the time, from what we see, um, the source code-based SBOMs are going to be a lot less accurate in the sense that they're they're going to be wildly incomplete. The the Individually identified software components from those might be fine. Um, obviously, we can identify specific versions of packages that were imported from code, um, but they're not going to include anything that's dynamically loaded, like I said before, so they're going to be fairly incomplete. The challenge in binary analysis, you know, SBOMs generated from binary analysis is the opposite. We have to use a bunch of context clues to know if we are correct in identifying a very specific version of a specific software component. And there can be very, very subtle and nuanced differences between individual versions that can have a, an enormous impact on vulnerability linkage and threat surface. I mean, if you consider a patch, you know, literally one minor version up can remove, you know, vulnerabilities entirely. And so our main concern is 
honing in our accuracy of identifying individual software components and versions that are in our SBOM because we're fairly confident the SBOM is complete, um, but we want to make sure that it's correctly complete. Uh, Follow-up so, question. Yeah. Follow question is, do you think that there's an opportunity to automate the process uh, in a platform to generate SBOM as the software is being developed? Uh, absolutely. I think that there's a lot of opportunity there to start building tooling around some of that. Yes. Um, it, it won't solve the dynamic problems and it won't solve the existing product problems. But um, if there were automated processes around building SBOMs as you develop, I think that there's a huge opportunity to build that. And I'm not aware of any comprehensive solutions that currently do that. Great, and that we are now at five thirty-one. Uh, so, so let's wrap it up here. I do have a couple quick questions, a couple quick uh, comments. But first, Jason, thank you so much. Um, I hope this is not your last time that we can convince you to to either virtually or 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 uh, in the real world get back to campus sometime uh, uh, and speak to our students. Um, you continue to make serious proud with uh, all that you are doing within the industry. A couple of quick questions. One reminder, next week's seminar will be live and in person in Stewart Center. So if you are on or around the Purdue campus, we please encourage you to come there. I, I, I do not want to have a, a live speaker in the room and, and everybody on the, the video. So do me a personal favor if you are registered with a class, if you can please show up to Stewart for the in-person. Uh, otherwise, there will be a virtual opportunity to Sirius is hiring. There is, an, there is a job listed on the uh, Purdue website that, uh, that is calling for a, uh, a cybersecurity researcher, primarily with a CS or a double E background or uh, out of Purdue with the Polytechnic that has some kind of cyber or computing oriented uh, graduate degree holder. Just go to the Purdue um, uh, HR website for career placement and you can see that or please feel free to reach out directly directly. And then finally, uh, one more reminder that the Serious Security Symposium is coming up March 28, 29, live and on campus. Please uh, uh, reach out to the website and register for that event. And uh, everybody attending is part of the cybersecurity community. So please share that with your network uh, so we can have uh, a lot of people here at campus with that. So uh, again, to circle back around, Jason, thank you so much. Uh, always a pleasure to have you back on campus, even if it's virtually. And look forward to uh, seeing, you, seeing you again soon, my friend. Awesome. Thanks for the opportunity, everybody. Thank you, Joel. It was great. Goodbye, everybody. See you next week.